Welcome to That Season Air podcast. I'm your host Gina. Stick with me as I chat to Season Air's expats and adventurers across the world sharing their inspiring stories and interesting insights into living and working abroad. On today's show, I catch up with former season there turned competitive speed skier, the one and only Carl O'Dwyer. Carl came in to talk us through his season air journey and how he went from being a holiday rep in France to being the first Irish person to enter the speed skiing world championship. There was, you know, a couple of topless waders and then strippers. So it got <laughs> hectic, but we were grand. We were safe behind the bar. Some of the lads were great cracking fairness, but I don't know how they managed it because she's Women get vicious, especially when a few lads start taking their clothes off. <laughs> we nearly claw marks on the lads, God bless them. Oh, so Tune in to hear Carl's experiences across France, Australia and Canada and listen right to the end of the show as we discuss some shifty visa shenanigans. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support for the show, you are now able to buy me a coffee via the link in the show notes. And without further ado, here's the show. Welcome to the show, Carl O'Dwyer. Well, do you know how things? How have you been? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Long time no see. Yeah, we met in France on my first season, so it's been a long time and we've got a lot to catch up on. Yes. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Whereabouts are you from? I'm from a little town called Dunboyne in Meath in Ireland. And what do I do with myself now? I was in a hospitality with my parents and pubs and stuff like that, so I've kind of been hospitality my whole life. And if anyone's going traveling, I would recommend get into hospitality because you can travel everywhere, get good jobs, and it's the easiest work to, to travel with anyway, definitely. Anyone who's going anywhere, get into hospitality. It just makes life easier when you're traveling. Yeah, for sure. So what was it that first sparked your interest in living and working abroad? What sparked my interest was I went on a couple of ski holidays when I was younger, and then I looked after the ski and snowboard club in my university for my last kind of year or two so we used to bring people abroad just for a week after the exams in January and chatting to the reps and seeing kind of what they were doing I just said after college I was like oh I definitely want to do one season and then we'll see where it goes from there but I never had intentions of spending years doing seasons anything like that Event and my brother only told me recently, he was like, I remember when you told me you weren't going to leave the village. You were happy out staying at home. And it just sounds mad to even hear some that I said that because it <laughs> didn't work out that way in the slightest. What were you studying in college? I was studying, the best way to describe it is a Celtic Tiger degree. Oh, right. <laughs> it was basically about entrepreneurship. and uh, It was business, venture management and computer science. And it was all based around entrepreneurship and setting up your own companies and stuff. And then the recession came. <laughs> and then, like, the <laughs> course doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. It literally oh, was really? a Celtic Tiger degree is the best way to describe it. <laughs> so um, what, at that point, what did you think you would be doing as a job in the future? At that point, I was going to go into teaching. So I went over to Liverpool to do interviews to get over because it was a finance degree. I was going to get into just teach business in secondary school. And I went over and they granted me a place, but it was another year. It sounded like something. I only wanted to kind of have it as a backup Mm -hmm. because it's a year over in the UK. It was two years in Ireland. So I was like, okay, I'll do one more year, have that in the the locker, and then I can head off. 
and I didn't really know what I was going to do jobs-wise. Mm-hmm. And when their session came in like that, all my friends, everyone was talking about going to Australia and doing a stint over there. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll do a ski season instead. Didn't bother going over to Liverpool to do the teaching in the end. And then kind of followed everyone else who was in Ireland at the time and leaving the country to go work. Obviously, I know what you did in your first ski season, but tell the audience what you did your first time working abroad. So I worked with a great Irish company called Direct Ski. But uh, at the time, to be honest, it's the only one that was available because for Irish people, it's pretty limited. A lot of the big companies, they don't accept Irish people because we don't have a national insurance number. We're on a different system. So, but it was perfect. And it was gas actually for my interview. So when we went and brought a uni group away abroad, um, some guy absolutely destroyed a bar one night. He jumped through like a glass panel in the bar and destroyed a load of stuff. And Where was this? It was in Lavinio. He ended up getting arrested and there was like thousands in damages and in my interview, um, I think it was Laura at the time, was, she was like, what's the worst thing that happened to you on a uni- university trip? And I was like, oh, one guy jumped through a DJ box. And then she was like, oh, it's you. We recognize your name from the bookings. Oh, my God. I, so I thought straight away, I'm not getting this job anyway. <laughs> but they said, if you're able to deal with 25, 30 students, like being a rep shouldn't be too bad at all. So it kind of helped in a way. But at the time, I was... Didn't think the interview was going well. (laughs) (laughs) So you got the job and where did they send you? They sent me off to Le Plan in France, which was a bit of a killer because all our training was based around, you know, one little town, one ski shop, one hire shop. You get to Le Plan and it was the first time they went to Le Plan. So I was was first and it's split into five villages. So there was five different ski hires, five different ski schools, five everything and no car. It was... After the first two days I wanted out, I was like ringing my mom. I was like, I'm coming home. This isn't what I was told it was going to be. Yeah. But I stayed in the end. Well done. <laughs> did yeah. you enjoy that season? Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely did. Met up with a couple of people. The only thing I found, only kind of looking back, is being a rep with a small company, especially your first season, I was put in a village where it was kind of a little bit out mm-hmm. from the main town. And just kind of mixing and meeting people at the start, I found quite difficult because you're on your own. Yeah. You know, so, but once you get into the season, you do a couple of the opening parties in the bars and um, you kind of get to mix then, you know, so it, it was good, but it was difficult at the start. Yeah, yeah. Back then they did have Facebook groups, but it wasn't quite as well known, was it? Well, it, it, it was a disaster. <laughs> I think actually my first season, I set up a Facebook group for the season airs on the mountain. Oh, really? And everyone's like, I've never heard of this. But I, I definitely needed it because I needed to mix. And because it was the first year direct ski were in the plan, I was going into all these shops and they didn't know who I was. So they didn't know the company. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't the best to be in the first one there, but I'm sure it was easier for everyone else after. Yeah. So after France, did you head back to Ireland then? Went back to Ireland for a couple of months and then headed off to Australia. Loads of my friends were going over and I was like, okay, not staying at home. Let's keep going. Um, and I went over to Australia with the intentions of doing a ski season over there because for your first year, you know the way you have to do farm work for three months? Because in my eyes, before going over, maybe a bit naive, I was told that the ski resorts were counted as regional work. Right. Because mm-hmm. you're in the middle of nowhere. So I was like, oh, lovely. I'll do that for my farm work. 
mm-hmm. but uh, that didn't work out. I didn't get to didn't get to do a ski season at that time in Australia. I went oh, back really? years later, but not that time. That was just a working holiday where you're just having fun with your mates for a year, working away, doing some really terrible jobs, some nice jobs. Whereabouts were you? <laughs> we were based in Sydney, and then we ended up out in the farms in a place called Palamalawa for about five months and it was three lads living in a caravan where the caravan was quite small but cosy with a tent out the front which held all our bags and clothes because we couldn't fit it all in the caravan mm-hmm. and we'd done some strange jobs out there from we we're picking up sticks on a pecan farm wow basically following a truck while it shook trees the nuts came down and we moved the sticks so they could pick up nuts so literally we were <laughs> stick pickers for a couple of weeks then we were hatcheting out olive trees for a little while and then we were driving tractors on a cotton farm mm-hmm. for a couple of months. And that was actually a great job. You make great money. Once we finished up there, we drove up to up north to Cairns and then we made our way down to Melbourne. So we spent about two months driving the full coast of Australia, just doing all the backpacker stuff, you know. Oh, wow. And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Just me and two of the lads. And then we met up with a big crew of us down in Melbourne. So there was half of my small village in Australia at the time. Like I think for, <laughs> for our Christmas dinner, there was about 20 of us. And I say 15 of us went to play school together. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. So kind of, it was literally just like being home. How did you find work in Australia? And how did you find accommodation or somewhere to live or a caravan, as it were? <laughs> oh, to be honest, Australia at the time, it was quite tough to get accommodation and stuff. And jobs as well, because the visa you go over on, it's, it's a one-year visa. You're only allowed to work for a company for six months and you have to do three months farm work to get the second year. So a lot of employers see that you're in your first year. They know you're only around for six months or you're mm-hmm. going off doing your farm work. And at the time, I don't know what it was with a lot of Irish that went over. I think it was quite messy, a lot of the Irish that went over. So anytime right. we were looking for accommodation, there were like four lads. No, not a hope. So we always had to nearly preview houses and stuff with two of the girls we knew and just say we were two couples because it was really difficult to get accommodation at the time. Wow. And jobs-wise was kind of up and down. I was working, I think, two or three jobs just to kind of do five to six days because everyone else I was over there with, they were doing nine to five and I was trying to do hospitality nine to five. So I ended up working some random jobs just to kind of make up the hours. But it worked in the end, you know? Yeah. What was the most random job you did? Oh, I think everyone does it when they first get over. We were applauders in a, at a game show. What? Yeah, so they advertise it in the hostel and literally <laughs> you get paid $50 and it's two hours and you go to some studio in the middle of the city and you have to just clap and cheer for some TV show. It was like a live, like a questions and answers kind of thing. I think it was called Riddlers or something. There was loads of people who actually go just to see a show and we were there getting paid because it's advertised in the hostel. So we were going up, you know, you do it two or three times and then you're so bored. But for $50 at the start, you're like, oh yeah, this is great. So yeah, probably the most random one I was doing at the time. And then I suppose another good one was I was working on like a party boat in Darling Harbour. All right, okay. That was great crack. So every Saturday I'd do that. And then kind of Tuesday or Wednesday every week, I'd go and wash the boat. Literally, oh, so it's just doing yeah. random jobs like that. What were you doing on the boat? I was just working as a barman. Okay. Literally, there was only about five lads on the boat. It was a bachelorette party boat. So 
we were safe because we were behind the, the bar, but there was, you know, a couple of topless waiters and then strippers. So it got <laughs> hectic, but we were grand. We were safe behind the bar. Some of the lads were great crack in fairness, but I don't know how they managed it because women get vicious, especially when a few lads start taking their clothes off. <laughs> to be nearly claw marks on the lads, God bless them. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. And it was an open bar because it was a package deal. So it was just, it was just messy, very messy. But it was great. It was, it was great crack. And that was just every Saturday night. And I'd finish up around one o'clock, hop off the boat. And they used to drop us right where all my mates used to be going out. So I'd just meet them after. So mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a handy gig. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you in Australia after all that? Done a full year, one year exactly. And then right. I came home and I was thinking, I think, I can't remember exactly the dates. And I was like, oh, lovely. I'm finishing up here. I'm going to go to Canada. That mm-hmm. was my plan. But at the time, it just didn't work out because they were only offering, I don't know, was it three or four thousand or six or seven thousand visas per year for Ireland? Mm-hmm. You had to be, you know, refreshing your computer, all your files ready to go, and try to get the visas. And they used to go in about 10, 15 minutes. Really? So my first year, I missed out and I just missed the visa the lottery kind of thing. So I got it then. So I came home and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I can't apply till next April. That's why I was like, oh, we'll get back into season air mode and I'll do another ski season. But between then, I was like, oh, I have a couple of months, what do I do? And I ended up going to New York for a couple of months. All right, okay. Which I think loads of Irish people do that where you just go over on a, a holiday, 90 days. You're allowed 88 days without getting a visa. And then you just try to get a job where, you know, you call it to a couple of Irish bars and you're like, I don't have a visa, but can I get a job? Oh, really? Yeah. It's a massive thing for summer, like for a three month stint. So I ended up getting one in, in an Irish bar called The Irish Pub. There's one everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for the social security number, I was like, well, I don't have one. And she goes, that's grand. And you just go down and talk to one of the kitchen porters and some Mexican guy gives you a social security number for a hundred dollars oh my god <laughs> so it's so funny but they're like oh just talk talk to your man downstairs he'll look after you so you just get a random social security number with your name on it and you do, you do your 90 days <laughs> not advisable for those people listening we don't um advise that you go and do this but it's very interesting <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, that was probably back in 2011 and 12, or 12. I mm. don't know how much more strict it is now, but it was it was fairly loose at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you in New York for them in the end? I'd done literally 88 days. I just maxed okay. the visa and it just worked out. It was going kind to of mid-August to mid-November. And then I got a gig then in back in La Plan for another ski season in France. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Anything different when you went back? Yeah, it was, I, I felt it was totally different because I ended up, I was I got a job as a rep, but it was with a company called Ski Beat. So they're chalet based. So it was a totally different repping experience because you're mm-hmm. looking, it's, I think we had 14 chalets. So I was looking after the 14 chalets. It's different when you're doing the hotels and you're popping in and you're going on more bar crawls and you're kind of getting everyone out for the app race ski. Where with the chalets, it was more kind of families you pop in and you might sit down and have dinner with them in the evenings mm. or give the chalet host to dig out. And then, you know, it's like every week, depending on the groups, you might have one or two great groups. You'll always pop in, get a bit of dinner, a few glasses of wine. And it's just a totally different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then 
on your days off, where with a rep, you can kind of take a bit more time off, I think. But for this, it was kind of when the chalet hosts were off, we'd all just go nuts. And we were living in a house with seven or eight of us. But um, yeah, it was just a totally different experience working with a big company mm-hmm. and having like 50 or 60 staff on in resort. Yeah. And But it was the same job as before. But it was just, I found it easier doing yeah. chalets than hotels. But yeah, no, I really, really enjoyed my second season. And the people I met, I just, it was, we had a great crew. And you know the way, everything's great. And then yeah. the only problem is when people get injured, like every week or second week, you lose someone and you don't know who's coming in next. I think that's the <laughs> hardest part of the season. It's like, oh, get on great with these. Oh, they're gone. <laughs> collarbone. <laughs> His collarbone broke. Her leg broke. That was my like biggest fear, I think, nearly doing seasons was breaking something and having to go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I literally find people leave, leave their brains at home when they go on holidays. Yeah. Literally, when they, as soon as they get on to the airport, I had one group and we we're unloading the bus. I think it was the last stop of the day. They're like, where's our bags? And it's like, well, did you put them on the bus? Do you know the way when we get on the bus? Does everyone watch their luggage go on? Are you on the right bus? And they're like, no, we thought you guys would do it. They left it at the airport where we have our sign saying direct ski. And I was like, <laughs> I was like you do know you're going to have to pay for a taxi to get this up here. And of course, they're throwing wobbler at you. Yeah. Being like, you left our bags in the airport. And just like <laughs> stuff like that. Like we had one guy, the funniest, I, well, maybe not the funniest, but one guy literally dropped everyone off their chalets. And I'd say 15 minutes later, I was just unpacking my own gear. Hi, Carl. I'm um, just wondering where the medical center is. Is it? Oh, what? Do you just need to know for reference or something? No, no. I'm after, I think I broke my arm. Some lad broke his arm walking to the ski hire shop. We were only in the resort maybe half an hour, max. And this fellow's like, how do I get my money back on my lift pass? <laughs> he, he had broken his arm on the way to the ski hire shop. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be a long week with you guys. <laughs> Well, the moral of the story is, and this has come up before, get insurance. (laughs) 100%. If you're going skiing, get insurance. And get it before you go. Because when you start doing ski seasons, if you're abroad and then trying to get insurance, if you're not a resident, it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. I had to do that one year when I was over in Canada and it cost me a fortune to get insurance because I didn't, it was just, I was in limbo. I hadn't been at home and it just, it was... Yeah, get insurance before you go anywhere and get off-piece insurance, get every sort of insurance you can. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So after that season in France, where did you go to next? After that, I went to Canada. So right. where I really wanted to go all the time. <laughs> um, and to be honest, Canada was just, from the, from the start, it just worked. One of the girls that I was working with in France, Megan, she lives over in Canada. And kind of naivety again, I had kind of, booked a ticket to Vancouver and I said right I'll do two years there and she was like come to a place called Kelowna that's roughly where I live start out there there's a couple of ski resorts within a couple hours drive you can kind of pick one when you get here I kind of worked my flights around there was a job fair for a ski hill called Big White Mm -hmm. and I arrived into Canada at about half one two o'clock in the morning because there was massive delays and things like that the job fair was at half eight in the morning. So I literally woke up, went to a job fair and I got a job within a couple of hours. Oh, wow. Just And it literally was just by chance. Trust me, right? If anyone's going to a job fair over in Canada, you don't need to wear a shirt or, and tie. I thought, okay, I'm in a new country. I'm going to a job fair. And then I rock up and I thought I was in Australia because <laughs> everyone at this job fair was Australian. They were all wearing flip-flops and shorts. 
and just flannel t-shirt or flannel tops, caps. And like everyone's just dressed pure casual. And there's me in like slacks, shirt and tie. I literally was like loosening my tie walking around because I was like, I'm so overdressed for this. <laughs> While I was queuing up waiting for one bar where I was like, right, that bar looks good because I was thinking busy bar, loads of tips behind the bar. And then there was a, an Irish company looking for chefs. And I was like, oh, here, I'll just hand in my CV here. Hey, guys, I know you're not looking for bartenders, but can I leave you my CV? And they were like, oh, sit down and have a chat with us. And they offered me a job. So it was probably the best thing that happened to me in Canada because the guys I ended up working for looked after me every single year I was there. They were the reason I kept going back to ski and big white because they just looked after me every way through. And so within 10 hours of being in Canada, I had my job and I had my resort picked. So yeah, just the way it worked out, it just yeah. worked out perfect. What was the name of that company? They were called Globe Tapas and the Blarney Song up in Big White. It's two guys called Paul and Jude, the nicest employers on the mountain. If you're going to Big White, you'll know who they are. They just, it was like having your mom and dad as your bosses. They were like <laughs> everyone's mom and dad. If you needed accommodation, they were like, oh, we'll get it for you. If anything was wrong, they're like, oh, you can use my car. You can do this. They just done everything they could to keep their staff happy. And they were just brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. How long were you in Canada for? I managed to get four years out of a two-year visa. Right, okay. <laughs> so I'd done four ski seasons up in Big White, basically. First season was the snow, unfortunately. It was absolutely terrible. But we still had a good season. And then... End of season in Big White is a little bit earlier than a couple of resorts. So we ended up going to Banff, doing a week there, checking out the hills over there, doing the Revelstoke. So you got to see other mountains. And with your lift pass over there, you get to a day here, a day there. Especially if you're working for the mountain, you get an awful lot of really, really good gigs in other resorts. But the only reason we really went back is it's ski and ski out, mostly. Right. And no queue and no queues. Like you'll go somewhere like Whistler, and yeah, the snow and everything is about Whistler is amazing, but it's really expensive. And um, when there is fresh snow, like you'd want to be down the lifts at half six in the morning to get mm-hmm. fresh lines because it's just too busy. Where we're in this place, there's an amazing ski area, and it's like no one knows about it. Mm-hmm. Like now you have to be if you want to get first tracks, you still got to be down there about half eight in the morning, eight o'clock at the chairlift, but it's like no one knows and you get just amazing skiing. I say at Christmas and things like that, it's a bit busy and then the Australian holidays because it's weird. In Canada, all the skiers are Australian. It's all <laughs> all Aussies and when you're working there, it's all Australians. I was like, <laughs> I, I couldn't understand that at the time. I was like, why, are, why do all the Australians come here? But that's it's full of them and <laughs> but they're all great crack and furnish. Well, most of them are anyway. But yeah, it's, it's really like the best kept secret in Canada. I've done most of the, the ski hills there now mm-hmm. in that area. And the skiing is just amazing. And it's just empty. It's, you're just not queuing. When you're not queuing for lifts and you have fresh tracks, it's just yeah, brilliant. Perfect. So go to Big White. Everyone go to Big White <laughs> if you're going to do Canada. <laughs> so you were there during the summer as well then? Yeah, so we used to pop down the mountain. About 70k is a little village called, well, not a little village, got a town called Kelowna. And Kelowna would be best, I think they call it Kelowna-fornia. That's what the real posh people <laughs> call it anyway. But we ended up getting a job in, like, it's not a resort, but it's more like a hotel on the water, on the lakes. Mm-hmm. So basically Kelowna is known for lovely weather, 
35 degrees, wineries and the lakes. So you're working in a great little resort, hotel, making amazing money work for tips. And then days off on the lake, going camping, nice hiking, days in the wineries. It's a beautiful little spot. And like that, not many people know about it. Yeah. Um, especially like if you're, there would be a couple of Australians in the summer, but like if you're Irish, you're absolute novelty. I think I met her seven or eight Irish the whole time we were there. Oh, wow. Um, but it's a, an amazing place to spend a summer. It mm-hmm. really is. I'd recommend it. It's just class. You know, days off in the wineries are chilling by the lakes. And yeah. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I've done three summers there. Okay. Two summers in a row. And then took a year break. I couldn't do continuous years because of visas. I was chopping and changing a lot of visas in Canada. You can only get two years. So I got two winters, two summers. Then the following summer, I was like, oh, there's no way I can get another one straight off the bat. So after the ski season, I was like, right, that's me done. So I ended up going to Australia and doing the winter there. Living in a caravan and doing my farm work ended up paying off about five or six years later because I was allowed back into Australia. <laughs> so ended up doing a ski season over there. And it was great. A big crew of us, well, five or six of us ended up going from Big White. And it's literally the same people. It's like when you start doing seasons, Australia, like Canada, it's, it's the same crew. Like you'll meet up with so many people. You'll recognize half the mountain. But um, like Australian ski seasons are, are grand. It's probably the best way I can put it. But there's no snow. <laughs> people can say they, they had all these powder days. But unless you're living on the hill, which no one does because everyone lives in a town called Jindabyne, it takes 40 minutes to get to Treadbow or Perisher. And anytime there's good snow, you're in a queue in the car for an hour and a half, two hours. So unless you're living in the resort, which not many people actually do, because you can't really get accommodation, you're not getting any of the good skiing. <laughs> like, I remember when I first went up and, you know, we were doing our training and I ended up just working as a, I was, what was my job title over there? Apre manager okay. for the hotel. It sounds great, but it was literally a glorified barman, like bar manager, really. You know, we're doing our training or whatever, and everyone's like, oh my God, it's starting to snow outside, it's starting to snow. And I looked out and it was sleet at best, like sleet (laughs) at best. And I was like, if this is what they're all getting excited about, I don't know what to expect from the ski season. And it was just like snow cannons on 24-7. Now, in fairness, the odd bit of snow days we got were good. Winds are really, really high, and they actually close the resort quite a bit which I found strange. So the lifts mm. just stopped running. And the skiers over there, they're absolute lunatics. <laughs> lunatics. So I like to kind of tip along and go quite fast from skiing. You shouldn't ever be worried about what's coming behind you. But over there, you need eyes in the back of your head. 100%. There is some absolute lunatics coming down the hill and all you hear is, ah! <laughs> just people out of control. Because so many of them, so many people I think over there they seem to just go over to Australia, rent all the gear for the weekend. And it, it is, it is just a piss up for most that come up and they do day tour at weekends from Sydney and stuff. And the amount of times you're going up in a chairlift and you just see a rogue snowboard just cruising down the hill, you know, and this was just day to day. The amount of, I got taken out of it a couple of times and oh it was God. just people out of control skiers. It was like people just rock up. Oh, it's only snow. She can't hurt me or something. Um, <laughs> You know, it was just it was just a mix. It was it was definitely different, very different. And then, like we were skiing along one day, and there was a, like a little horse running down the, the slope. 
they're called brumbies or wild brumbies or something. You know, you're just skiing along. There's like some big animal just cruising down. The guy's <laughs> driving to work one day and there's these two emus just running in front of the car for about a half a mile. I was like, as this is, like, where are we? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and then driving home from the resort at night, I didn't drive, I just got lifts. I didn't have a car. But it was lethal because they went to animals on the roads and then they salt the roads on bad days and there's deer licking this. There's deer, there's... I don't know, what wombats look like big fat badgers. I don't know what they are. <laughs> and like kangaroos. And it, it's literally just carnage on the side of the road. It's mad. Like oh it's, it, it, it's, it's just a different world. Like I, I seen one lad getting out of his car to put on snow chains and he was wearing flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I thought it was the strangest species <laughs> I ever did. Yeah, sounds it. <laughs> yeah, no, no it, it's entertaining. Did you enjoy that season though in Australia? I did, yeah. We had a great elk crew with us. It was a load of the guys that we'd met in Canada. Mm-hmm. It was just just different, I suppose. Even like working for a, a bigger company because I worked for the resort. You know, there's a few lads who were my managers who didn't have a breeze what was going on. And okay. I'd kind of skipped the middleman to get a job done. And then you didn't go up through the hierarchy. Right. And it was just a lot over and back. And, you know. Yeah, stepping on people's toes or they think it is when you're just trying to get a job done. Exactly, exactly. So there was an awful lot of that sort of carry on. And so it just didn't mix well with me because I'd come from where I was working in Canada. I was mm-hmm. a manager. And, you know, you just kind of, if something needs to be done, you get it done. Like I'd always be saying, like, guys, end game, customer happy. Why does it matter what I've done in between? Yeah. That I didn't get clearance to do this. It's like, there's no one dead over it. Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> you still have money in the till and the staff. Are the customers happy? What's the problem here? Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, I didn't approve of that, or I didn't approve. It. Like, who cares? Who cares? It's done, isn't it? So, yeah. so I know it just didn't mix well with me for things like that, you know, because it was just people giving out for the sake of giving out, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Following on from Australia, where did you go after that? Back to Canada for my last snow season. That was for the last big hurrah, where I was just about like I don't even know how I managed this. So to get it back into Canada, it was I was fairly sketchy. Because the time I went before, I'd just done a border run in America. So I drove down. As I was coming back, I was going to come back as a tourist visa because I had like a month or two left for the ski season. Okay. And of course, they were like, you can't just do that. And I was like, why not? <laughs> and he was like, so where do you live? And I was like, oh, I live in Big White. He goes, no, you don't. You live in Ireland. You are not a resident here in Canada. So, so the, the, the last time I was going in, I was like, okay, what's the max you're allowed and you can get up to about six months as a tourist visa. So what I had done, I was doing a bit of ski racing at the time while I was trying to get into racing. Okay. And to get into Canada for my last ski season, I basically printed out the ski calendar for the giant slalom calendar in Canada. And I booked accommodation on bookings.com, all stuff that you could cancel. And same with car rental. So basically when I was going up to the airport, you type in how many days you want. I said, I needed X amount of days. And they're like, that's quite a high amount of days. How can we need that many? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm over here to ski race for the winter. Here's my bank account with X amount in it. Um, here's my calendar. Here's my bookings. Here's my car rentals. And he's like, why aren't you going home between this race and this race? And I said, it's just too expensive. So that's how they granted me the full visa for the full winter. So it just worked out perfect. So I was over there basically ski racing according to the Canadian government (laughs) (laughs) 
And then at the time... Again, not advisable. <laughs> not advisable. And I had an older brother at the time who was going to go to Canada. He got his two-year visa. He ended up not going, but he went over on holidays and I told him to activate his visa and his social security number. So I used that. So I was somebody else for a bit in Canada then after that. And like, according to the Canadians, they don't have a clue. It's literally a social security number and a bank account. So I'm getting paid under a legit visa. It just wasn't who said it was. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but I I had to, I had to. I was like, I can't, I need one more season because... That's what I wanted. <laughs> That's I what mean, I wanted to get into doing speed skiing. So <laughs> it's a great length to go to to just get one more season. <laughs> I know. But, I know. Yeah, I'm impressed, but I also must say that that season of podcast does not encourage people to do this. But carry on, tell the rest of the story. <laughs> I and I wouldn't recommend it either because you just feel so sketchy all the time. Like you're worried if like you get pulled over for something on your reg plate or something, and they ask for your ID or something. And, you just never know what way it's going to go. You know, I'm in work there and an inspector came in because there was they were trying to catch people for underage drinking. And you're afraid. Like, I gave my name straight away because I was in charge. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, shit, I shouldn't be working. I gave him my actual name. Ah. So then I'm, you're worried about little things like that constantly. Yeah. So it was just, just the way it worked out. I just needed one more season. I wanted to do a couple of races, especially there was a, a new thing I was getting into, which was speed skiing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, OK, I need one more so I had to, I had to do it because <laughs> <laughs> just the way it worked out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you said that you got into speed skiing and ski racing. What is the difference between those two sports and how did you get into them? I suppose how I got into them was going back to Big White. I was going back for one for the work and I was ski and ski out, but they also had a master ski program every Sunday. And I was like, I'd love to try a little bit of ski racing. So I was hoping maybe slalom or joint slalom or something or maybe joint slalom and I realized how difficult it was to actually do ski racing like kind of narrow turning and stuff but I'd done that every Sunday for probably two years and I just really enjoyed it you're out there going through gates and you're learning the little basics I remember you know Jeffrey you know the app on your phone I think was it called ski trace snow tracks yes that's the one and basically over there whatever app we were using it kind of Gives your average speed for the day, your sustained speed, your maps, your runs, but it actually puts you in a table against other people. So people are there competing over how many miles they get done, <laughs> season type stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And every time I looked at it, my name was up at the very top for sustained speed because there was a couple of runs where I used to just, I couldn't help myself. I'd come around the corner, I'd see it was free and I'd just go into a tuck and just try and, you'd be trying to hit around 100k. When I was doing that, I, by chance, I kind of looked at, you know, what's the fastest you can ski? And then something came up in Canada for an event called speed skiing. And I was like, oh, yeah, give me a go of this. <laughs> so I kind of done the bit of racing. And then I kind of read into all the gear you need for speed skiing. And mm-hmm. I was like, where am I going to get all this? So one guy gave me a ski suit and I ended up doing a week long downhill course. So right. just downhill skiing. Now it's this was with a load of alphas. These are lads in their like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, some of them. And it's just a nice track they do in a place called Silver Star every year. It's great. You go downhill skiing, you have about six runs a day on an entry level downhill track where you're going about 100k and some, some sections of it. But it was my first experience with longer skis, wearing a helmet, back brace and a ski suit. Yeah. I could not believe the difference. 
when you literally strip a layer off going from your celopestin jacket down to the skin tight gear to speed mm-hmm. is next level. <laughs> so <laughs> once I kind of got used to that, I was like, right, let's go. Let's let's go do this speed ski event. Got there. And like most ski events, it was called off because there was too much snow and wind. So we ended up wasting a week. But the second last day, the professionals were out. So we got to watch them. The professionals are in, you know, a rubber suit, aerodynamic helmet. The skis are 2.4 meters long. Whoa. And to be honest, while we were watching it and we're just standing by the side of the hill and the hill is like steep, it like as steep as hill as you're going to see. And you just hear them going by. It's like a race car. It's like, vroom. and Joe, I was just like, I want to do that so bad. <laughs> wow. So, That's mad. So I think that was in my first year or second year. So I'm third year in Canada. I was like, right, I'm entering that event. It's the most Canadian name ever. So there's an entry level day where it's called, So You Think You're Fast, eh? <laughs> and literally anyone who has downhill equipment, so you're race pommel suit, which is an official suit, downhill skis, a back brace, and a FIS-approved ski helmet, you're allowed to go down the track. Right. I was like, right, give me that. And then if you're doing the entry level, you're allowed to do, it's a thing called a speed two category. So if they let you go after the entry level day, you can actually enter a World Cup in speed two with Mm -hmm. zero experience at all. So I was like, oh, sure, I may as well. I'll enter that. And they kind of were like, <laughs> the guys were like, uh, okay, you just need to get approval from, from Ireland and whoever your snow sports association is. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll see what that is. And I got onto Snow Sports Ireland and they had no clue what speed skiing was. They didn't know who I was because sure, how would they? I had to kind of get references off the ski lads that I do the Sunday classes with to say oh he'll be okay to go skiing and they had to kind of write me a reference to say I'd be okay to enter the event so I had to just get all this random stuff snow sports Ireland were like who's this fellow what's he going doing so I had a few chats with them and they were like okay you should be okay went in on the entry day they kind of started us off at the halfway point on the hill I just thought this was amazing you know but the first run down I had like my full ski suit on I wasn't stripping down everyone else you had from the professional level up doing their runs. And I'm just saying, like, oh, here, what do I do? So I slowly took a layer off each time, went down the hill. I was like, oh, this is going perfect. Loving this. I was allowed then enter into the World Cup. I think there was 16 people in my category. Okay. And for the first, I think there was three days of it. I think every single race, I came dead last. I was dead last in every single one of them. I just didn't know the technique for kind of really tucking down you know, flatten out your skis. I had just rented the skis. So I was, <laughs> these boys are there waxing all the gear and, you know, doing all this. And I'm just, all oh, right, lads, what's the story? You know, just throwing on my gear. You want to see the suit I had? It was bright yellow. It was like something from Blades of Glory is the best way to describe it. It was like yeah. retro yellow with purple on it. It was like a really, really old Canadian ski suit. <laughs> So, yeah, that suit, it's like the one I saw you in on your Facebook, the red one. It's like something out of that Britney Spears video. Oops, I did it again. It's exactly the same. Ex- that's exactly what. So when you get up to the high level, to the speed one, like that's where they got their inspiration from. Definitely Britney Spears because it's the exact same suit. <laughs> and the helmet is nuts as well. Like oh, it's such a Darth random... Vader. Like yeah. Darth Vader, you know. <laughs> 
Was it even remotely comfortable at all or not? <laughs> to be honest, they're actually not bad. They're lovely. You know, <laughs> like if you, you throw one on, maybe the, the downhill suits, if you had a cold day in resort, mm-hmm. you could throw that on under your gear and you'd be lovely and snug. <laughs> they're not bad. <laughs> Oh, well, they just look ridiculous. They look ridiculous. Like <laughs> you wouldn't want to have, like, you know, they don't leave much to the imagination. You, you want to be, <laughs> you want to feel like you're in half good nick, like you, you know, feeling fairly fit getting into it. Because if you're not, it'll show up everything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are something else. I've never seen anything like that except for, as we said, Britney Spears video. Yes, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I think it was the last day of the racing, and I was like, okay, guys, we've one more run. I think I had moved up one place, maybe to 15th because someone probably fell or something or they decided to not do the run. But I was like, right, my last run, this is the last day. I'm going to just put the head down. And I asked one of the guys from New Zealand who had won the last, the previous race. And I was like, how do you get so fast? Like, and he goes, try and, you know, push your hands out in front of you to break the wind and go flatter on your skis. I was like, all right, Grant, I'll give that a lash. So you literally can see there's a video somewhere on YouTube you know, it's about a 15 minute video and I'm on a, like a 10 seconds of it. But I put my skis on and I'm going down and I start flattening out my skis, which I didn't realize when that happens, your legs start moving in and out because you're not on an edge. You know, like when you're on an edge in the snowboard, you have a nice bit of grip. So there's one, you can see my legs going in and out, in and out. And this was the first time I went from the top of the hill. So I'd never went this fast. And I was like, at the very end, when you're trying to slow down, you do a thing called a gorilla pose. So you just put your arms out as wide as you can. The wind resistance does slow you and then you have a massive mm. run out to put on the brakes. Right. I'm sure I was going this fast and I was going down and I can still remember every bit of it where I was like, oh, this isn't going, this isn't, this is, I'm going way too fast. So when I went to stand up to do the kind of gorilla pose, I kind of came up early on one side and it just kind of turned my body and so that was me, veered into the, to the B-nets, into the side and just mangled myself, absolutely mangled myself. Oh no. But at the time, I was like, afterwards, I was like, right, my face was not bust up, but a nice few bruises. Back was in tatters, massive bruising. Thank God for the back brace. 100% thank God for the back brace. But my score was recorded, so I was happy, you know. So (laughs) I had So you're mangled, but happy. Yeah, so I clocked 143 (laughs) kilometers or 144, Mm -hmm. and I finished 10th, and I was like, Fucking brilliant. I was absolutely delighted. Even that's though amazing. I, was in, I was in absolute bits and I was like, okay, that's not good. So the following year I was doing the same category and I had trained all summer mm-hmm. and an awful lot more on how to do the stopping, which was a big thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, a lot of balance, Stop. a lot of core work. And I was like, right, I'm ready to go. And I was, for me, it was like, oh, I trained all year for this. And then a week before I mangled myself just free skiing, hit a random bump, twisted my knee, and I think I tore tendons and ligaments in my in my oh, wow. right ankle. And I'd say it was about four days before going to the World Cup. And I was like, oh, I'm after paying for all this. There was about 10 people coming to stay with us in an Airbnb and watch it all. Oh, my wow. younger brother was going to come in and do the entry day. Mm-hmm. He was going to do this, this small level one. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I ended up just ice packing it every day. And then went to do the event and I just horsed myself with painkillers. The hardest part was kind of getting, getting the boot on every day. Once you're in the boot, it's like a cast anyway. But I couldn't turn, I couldn't break if I turned left because it was my right leg. So I had to kind of 
ski right and jam on with my left foot facing down the hill, which was the way everyone stopped because the way the track layout was at the end. So mm-hmm. I was able to compete for the whole thing. But as soon as I'd finish up at two o'clock, three o'clock in the day, it's like four hours of icing on, off, on, off. And then you can see in the pictures, I was so good at because I had a lovely technique for ages. And I couldn't hunker down enough because my mm. ankle was just in bits. But I still got to do it and I got a new speed. But it was just gutting at the time because I was like, oh, yeah. years of hard work. But because I had done the second season in S2, I was like, right, now I can go on and give it a go with the big boys, you know, so. And, and were you in Canada for this whole time? Yes, yeah, yeah. Right, because okay. they, they, they just set it up lovely, a, a resort called Sun Peaks. They just, it's a perfect little spot and they kind of really look after you. Like I had a Canadian family were like, they could see I was on my own, doing my own things. Most of the people are there are with teams and, you know, so he was like, come on, brought me in. Like you see, you go into the car parks, in the hotels and everyone's there waxing their skis and doing all their tech, you know? And he was like, bring your gear down. I'll teach you how to do your waxing, do all your skis. And most evenings then I'd go down with him and he was teaching me how to do it. He was oh, like, that's so cool. What? You don't have to be this nice. Cause I'm literally competing against this guy. Aww. And you know, he was just um big shout out to Brad in some piece. And I think cause I, I recognized him from the year before and he was there with his two kids so I reckon because his kids weren't with him this year, he was just kind of taking me in. Yeah. But he taught me how to, I never knew how to wax skis properly to that level. And he had all the gear, all the brushes, the wax, all the stuff where I was like, oh yeah, you need all this stuff too, is it? You know, wow, yeah. so naive really, but you, know, you kind of have to go into these things half naive and give it a go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So once I was allowed to that, it was kind of after that ski season then. And it's mainly the reason I kind of moved home. Because mm-hmm. at the time, I was plans to kind of stay in Canada. I had a sponsorship that had just come through. Initially, I tried to get sponsored in my second year, and it was meant to come through so I could get those illegal two years. <laughs> were supposed to be legit, but it ended up taking four years, or two more years to get it through. So I think it came through shortly after my fourth season right. over there. And I was like, oh, I really wanted to give the speed ski in just one year and do the full World Cup circuit with the fastest guys in the world. So I was like, okay. And the only way I could do that was in Europe because they'd only done one race a year in North America, which was in Sun Peaks. They were cancelling it that year and all the races were going to be based in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I was like, the only way I can do this is if I go home. I was like, okay, I need to give, I need to give the speed skiing one good, good, good lash, you know? So I was like, I can do that from home. So... That's why I ended up moving home. I came home and at the time, I kind of went back looking after my mom and dad's pub mm-hmm. and it just worked out very well because it was the only thing I could do where I could still earn money but take large amounts of time off. So as soon as I got home, I had to fly over to France to get fitted for the Speed 1 suit mm-hmm. because there's one, there's one or two places that make them. And there's one guy over in, um, in Finland who makes them. And then the main company is Jonathan and Fletcher. Where is it in Annecy in France? Okay. So I flew off to Annecy for a day, for two days, got fitted in their offices. They're expensive, like a thousand euro for the oh, suits. Right. Wow. But, you know, because they are skin tight, sending measurements is only going to get you so far. Mm-hmm. Like even 
when I went over, they put me in this little tiny suit. It was probably uh, a woman's one because I'm only small anyway. But uh, it was this thing was welded onto me. And they're like, OK, we can take this bit out and this bit out. But it was as snug as it gets, mm-hmm. you know. So once I got the, the suit, then it was over to Austria. OK. To get the skis. You could probably order them, but it was just, I have an uncle who lives in a close area to the Atomic Center in Austria. I went over there. I wanted to get boots and I wanted to get skis and you can only get them there because things are huge. Like to send them abroad, I don't know, must cost a fortune for delivery, but I was like, okay, I'll go over and collect them. And I wanted to get fitted properly for boots where these guys were just amazing. They're in with a little, little drills and chisels and they're just molding, like drilling away half the plastic just to fit your feet perfect. And because in speed skiing, it's not like anything else where you can just, you can't just pop the braces and loosen them up. Like once you're locked into the boots and the speed skiing, they're on for the day. So you can't just loosen some, loosen them up. So you needed wow. them perfect. So yeah, went over there and then a great company here in Ireland called the Ski Centre. They let me train there. When you, when you ask, how do you train for speed skiing? Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask. How do you train in Ireland? <laughs> There's not many hills I can really put on the skis and have a go. But a, a lot of it is just core and endurance on the legs. You know, so a lot of work at the gyms on balance balls with resistance bands. An awful lot of stuff was just your core stability, everything on a balance ball, uh, building up the legs. And then just to get the hours in, in the kind of that positioning, to kind of that crouch positioning. There's a the ski centre in Ireland. There's two centres. One's in all weather. The other one's like a treadmill, like a ski treadmill. Yeah. And they were amazing. They said, oh, this sounds brilliant. We've never heard of anyone doing this. So they really gave me free reign whenever I needed it. So I used to go up once or twice a week. You just water down the treadmill, have the remote in your hand, and you're literally just in a hunk, hunkered down position, moving it, like just kind of simulating how the, the tuck would be the whole yeah. way down the hill. Just moving your legs in and out because... As you're trying to go faster, your legs seem to want to move outwards. Mm-hmm. So trying to having to just bring them in and just getting the hours in on that treadmill, I thought it was, it was just brilliant. Because even if you're in a resort, they're not going to let you just put on the gear and take off down a hill because you'll absolutely wipe someone out. Yeah, yeah. You know, because <laughs> say your average all mountain skis, your turning radius might be 18 meters. And then the really small skis, maybe 10. On these, it's 95 meters. Oh, wow. So like one turn, you've, your turning rate is about, it takes about 95 meters to do a turn because they're smart. so long. <laughs> so okay. like, yeah, and they, they weigh about 10 kilos. They're, like they're beasts of things, you know, they're absolutely enormous. <laughs> but uh, so once I was getting the training in, got all the gear, bought a helmet off some lad on a Facebook site, the speed ski kind of group, which are amazing. You kind of put up, lads, I need this, I need that. Any recommendations? Everyone tells you how to get them. Then for the ski poles, you can get regular downhill poles, but a lot of people get basically steel, put grips on the tops of them, and then they bend them around their body so that when you're in a tuck, your poles kind of meet at your hips and kind of wrap around. Oh, so it kind wow. of keeps you in a locked position. Yeah. Literally for that, I for some local kind of, I don't know what even you'd call what where I got them. They said the pipes are used for... Uh, dairy farms for, for milk and I just got lengths of this kind of steel pipe that was <laughs> roughly the same diameter as a ski pole and I got one of my friends to kind of basically he's a 
<laughs> he's a refrigeration engineer, but he had all the tools to bend pipes. And he basically was up in his kitchen and he was kind of bending the pipe around my body shape. So that, that was all the gear. And then the, on the backs of your legs, you have to kind of put these things called fairings. Mm-hmm. So the best way to describe it would be, it's like a spoiler on the back of a car, but it's just, it's, I don't even know how to describe this, but basically everyone has to make these themselves and you have a limit on how far they can be from the back of your leg. They kind of go in a triangle shape so that off the back of your leg, you want the wind to come off smooth. But everyone has to make these themselves. You can't buy them in the shop. This is so, a very special sport, isn't it? A hundred percent. So when, you, when you're there at the start of an event and everyone's like, okay, guys, everyone meets up at this area and everyone's there putting on their gear. It's hilarious because everyone has these random things sticking out the backs of their legs. People have like the buckles taken off their skis, like they're, they're ratchet strapped on, you know, like duct tape and insulating tape are the most important parts of speed skiing because they literally, <laughs> to put the fairing on the back of your leg, it's just this big cone. So I used like housing insulation. So that you just put up to the back of your ski boot, carve it into a nice shape. Mm-hmm. And then when you're going doing your ski run, or beforehand, you strap this thing to the back of your boot, you kind of duct tape it on, and then everyone is doing the exact same thing here. Like it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. They're all in different shapes and sizes. And then you kind of pull down your suit, get it all on. You get insulating tape again. It's really thick stuff. So that you block off all areas where any wind can get through. Right. And you kind of tuck in the corners, basically, with tape. So just everyone doing it. <laughs> And then to get the suit on, you just look over and there's like two lads helping everyone into their suits. You have to kind of crouch down and the things are welded. Like it nearly gives you better posture because it's so tight. It just straightens you up, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's hilarious. That's what everyone's doing. Everyone's doing the exact same thing. Just wrapping themselves in tape to get these Mad. things on the backs of their legs. And <laughs> then you, you head off and go off and do your runs. And I think we started off, the first one I'd done was in Sweden. I went over for a week in Sweden. I never felt so awkward in my life because you get to the ski run. Mm. I had never used the skis before. So I'd done a day of free skiing around in these huge 2.4 meter skis just to get used to them. Cause I was like, what are these going to be like? And then, so they had the training day for the Swedish championships and we were allowed to ski with them. Everyone was allowed to do, it was like our training day was their championships. And they're going up and I was like, Oh, where can I go from? Or where do you want to go from? And I was like, Oh, can I start halfway? Like, I, I don't want to go up to where the lads are all going. Mm-hmm. So you have all the pros. They're going from three quarters way up and just ripping down the mountain. I see a lot of little kids going from about a quarter of the way. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, here. Oh, I haven't used all the gear yet. So I was there with my ski jacket still on to slow me a bit down. I was always there with the kids. I meant to be racing against these guys in a few days. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but in my eyes, I was like, if I make a mistake, I'm going to fall like I did years ago and it's yeah. going to be a disaster. So it's like, if you fall, you're, you're fucked. Like if you're going to wreck yourself. So it's like, I'll take it slow, take it slow. So a couple of runs in, I was grand. A few wobbles, this caught a few edges, kind of went a bit wayward, but kind of held it together. And then they bring you up to the halfway point for the training day and the day after. And to be honest, for the first two days of competition, I absolutely hated. I was oh, no. hating, hating every day of it. I was just so scared. I was breaking it that I was going to like catch an edge and mill myself. And then I was like literally coming home into the hotel and you're there with everyone. Like, you know, they're all being real nice to you and they kind of, oh, do you need help with this? And do you need help with this? And they were great, but I was like telling my girlfriend the evenings there, I was like, oh, not looking, not looking forward to this. 
not really sleeping too much because oh, I was so worried. Yeah. And then something just happened. It was its third day. I literally went down, had nearly a bad start, but it kind of worked out. I was like, oh, so I don't have to be absolutely perfect. I can catch a bit of an edge and pull it back. And it was like something clicked and I was dying to get back up to the top of the hill. Oh, and it was like, good. I was like, oh, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. <laughs> and um, we were doing speeds. I think we were doing, I think, you know, 160, 170. Oh, wow. That sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, loving every bit of it. It was just trying to stop and slow down. I was like, whoa, geez, this is, you can really feel it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. That is so fast. Um, yeah, so it was brilliant. And I wasn't coming, I wasn't coming dead last. I was kind of tipping away. You know, I was beating a few lads, a few older lads. There's one guy and he's doing it in his 70s. You oh, know? wow. And he was like one of the nicest men ever. But he was going to give you a hand and he mm-hmm. was kind of, he'd be nearly standing up when he's doing it. But he's just loving the speed. Once once after Sweden, we'd done about four more events and I was just hooked. And then we got to do the World Championships in France. That's where they get the world records every year. When the snow is good, they do it. So I think I finished 19th or 20th or something. Top speed over the week there was 195 kilometers an hour. Oh my God. So, and it was literally, I felt it was the easiest track we skied on because it was just long. It wasn't overly steep and you just got into a nice position and just enjoyed it. It was just, I'd say I just had a smile on my face the whole time, the whole way down. I was like, this is just amazing. (laughs) Oh my God, that sounds awful. (laughs) I would literally shit myself. (laughs) It sounds like it, like it doesn't mean I would. I'm not happy going over 120 kilometers in a car, but on skis, I just it's it's just you're going from zero to probably probably getting over 200 because the 195 for me it's your average over 100 meters at the end. Right. So you're probably clocking over 200, but it only takes about 10 seconds to go from zero to 200. God, that's and then lot. you're slowing down just as quick, but it, it doesn't feel it because because you're so aerodynamic in your positioning. Yeah. You don't notice the speed until you, you stand up and then you try and slow down. Ah, okay. And what I do, I remember the fast, when I'd done about 180 one day, I didn't realise, but there was two or three screws loose on my helmet. Oh, and because I hadn't gone that fast, so I didn't notice it. So when I stood up, the helmet just started going, <laughs> like flapping in the way, like, and I was like, what's that noise? It scared the shit out of me. I nearly fell over. <laughs> and then I was like, Lads, what's the story with this? And they were like, you're missing a lot of screws, you idiot. I was like, I don't know. Like, why do I, you know, <laughs> got it sent over from New Zealand. So how am I supposed to know if it's right or not? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, but if someone <laughs> gave me a couple of screws, the next time I went down, there was no noise and it was lovely. <laughs> so when you are actually going that fast at that moment, when you're doing 200 kilometers per hour, what is going on in your brain? So what's going on? Um... When you're going down, it's a narrow enough track, maybe about three or four metres, and there's blue lines either side. And you know what? I'm thinking, geez, this is... Uh, I remember it felt like time slowed down. Oh, really? The best way to describe it. So, so the best way. You concentrate and think of nothing else but that blue line. You're just head down in a little tuck, and you're like, follow that line. Make sure you don't go off course. And when you get to the next kind of finish line, get ready to stand up and get that pose, that strong pose to slow you down. But you don't think of anything else. And it literally feels like you're going slow. Like at one point, I was like, I was like, am I veering a bit right here? Like, I'll shuffle back a bit. It was like I'd nearly a time 
So you're kind of, you felt like you were doing little adjustments, but then it's over. So I was like, how was I thinking of all that? It just, it, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. it <laughs> yeah, a lot of thoughts it, in just a few seconds. <laughs> yeah, and it feels like it, it feels like you've slowed down. I don't know, you know, when people say you go into a flow or something like that, it's probably something because if you think about other things, that's probably when you crash. Like when you see lads crashing at that speed, it's it's horrendous. You know, it's it just sends shivers down everybody. Yeah. You know, because when the falls are they're bad, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be, you know, it's uh, it is quite scary when someone does take a tumble. Yeah. And are you continuing with that now? Now you're at home? Um, I didn't get to do it in the last couple of years because of COVID. I had plans to go straight back in and get it going. Mm-hmm. The calendar was released again there last week. Yeah, I'd love to give it one more crack because I really want to get over 200. <laughs> and it's just, it's just something in my head. It's like 200. And I was so close the last time. I thought my positioning was poor. I could be doing an awful lot more. I've had I've made adjustments with my boots where I can get down into a lower tuck position. So I'd like to give it one more crack. It's just, it's so expensive and it's weather dependent. Like it costs you about, for me to get over accommodation, everything, it's about two grand, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, yeah. And then that's not including taking it off work. So we'll see. And then my girlfriend does not like it at all because obviously dangerous traveling that speed it's not the nicest yeah. thing to have to worry about so I don't know those things it's like when I was doing it at the start right now I'm ready to worry about but you know when someone else comes along you kind of have yeah. to nearly think for two <laughs> yeah you got to listen to the boss <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um so what was your biggest achievement in that um definitely hitting the speed I hit I was delighted with so mm-hmm. I was happy with the 195 I suppose it was the first person from Ireland to do it. So that was probably the biggest achievement. It's really cool, yeah. And it was lovely because they, for the World Cup, they kind of do a little walk through the village, you're holding your flag. And it's nice that they kind of acknowledge that where they're like, you know, this is the first time we've had an Irish person competing in the sport. I think there was a fellow who was of Irish descent done it in Canada at some stage, but no one from Ireland has competed in the World Cup. So kind of being the first person to do That's it. amazing, yeah. Was, um, was pretty, yeah, I think that was probably the best part of it. Yeah, really cool. And then you just get to meet some great people, you know. Like you have the guys who have the world record, you know, one Italian guy, he's won 12 World Cups or something, you know, he's the best in the world has ever done it. And he's there joking with me saying, how's the treadmill skiing going, you know. Because like so, <laughs> they'd all see it on Instagram. And so so it, it's, it's an amazing clique of people. They're just the nicest people. And everyone wants everyone to do well. It's not just the World Cup. People are going for national records every year. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was one year, uh, one of the local guys, Simone, uh, Billy, he won his first World Cup race. But the guy who came down shortly after him, um, Jos van der Loost, I think his name is, uh, he had just got the Belgian records. Oh, wow. And the guys were celebrating just as much for him to get a national record yeah. as him winning his first World Cup. And everyone, everyone's just happy that everyone does well. You know, yeah, so yeah. the community is second to none second to none people all trying to help you so but yeah biggest achievement was probably being the first to do it and clocking the speed I did I was delighted yeah. you know it's amazing yeah so you've decided now to stay in Ireland yes do you miss season life are you planning to go back at all I probably won't go back I found where I was doing it in particular mm-hmm. it wasn't a place it was wasn't really fully year round so 
there's not as many people there serious, you know, working full-time career jobs. It's a lot of more just everyone getting up, going nuts and partying for a season. So yeah. it, it was, especially the last two or three years when I was managing the restaurant, kind of finding that mix of going out and partying and having the crack, but then still being people's boss. People kind of out drinking with you, they're kind of like, oh, he's our boss. We can't go go nuts if he's mm-hmm. here. And I just found that kind of hard one to kind of do where you're kind of finding the balance of the two because you want yeah, to be professional, yeah. but you want to enjoy it as well. I think after a while, I was like, to be honest, if I want to settle, and I was kind of getting that point, am I setting up shop here in Canada or am I going to move home? So, mm-hmm. And then with the speed ski and the kind of all roads led to home. Just, I was yeah. kind of starting to miss occasions, people getting married, family, things like that. So I think after the nine or 10 years away, you're kind of like, hmm. So what? I think I'm I'm nearly set for home now. Yeah, you know, yeah. So kind of burn, burn it all out. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got the opportunity there with uh, the speed skiing to still do a bit of travel. So you managed to get a little bit more in. Hundred percent. Where are the other countries you travelled to with the speed skiing? Um, we done Sweden, then France, then Andorra, oh, and cool. then I think next year there's Switzerland are in it. There's a second one in France and then Finland. I was going to do the one in Finland, but everyone just tells me how cold it is. It's like minus 28 degrees, 29 degrees. And it's a really difficult area to get to. It's it's a resort near Lapland. And I was looking at just flights and things like that. It was When you're traveling with that much gear, it's quite difficult because you have to get a big car. It's probably two flights. And unless you get looked after, like mm-hmm. I got really well looked after with the Irish company, Aer Lingus, where they paid for my bags. So oh, I didn't wow. have to pay for baggage, which was two ski bags, 20 kilos each, where you can't buy ski bags for speed skis. <laughs> so mine's a paddleboard bag oh, that's wow. wrapped in a lot of duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> Love that duct tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's just big and awkward to get around. So I didn't get to go to Finland, but there there is more and more hills now that are going to be doing it. You know? Yeah. Do you still enjoy regular skiing oh love it really yeah, like, oh your yeah, friends definitely. must absolutely hate going skiing with you they can just not see you for the whole day see I used to do I used to do days you know so you know on a powder day you're with mm-hmm. your mates because you're not going fast you're just like in Canada that's one thing I probably miss when we miss most about Canada is the snow mm-hmm. like where we were they call it champagne powder and it literally is the only way I could describe it is it feels like you're going through a cloud. Like you can be in snow up over your hips and you're just cruising down just so light. You can launch yourself off the top vent and then it feels like you're landing in pillows. <laughs> and like three runs in that sort of snow, you can get so aggressive. You have so much grip. I'll miss that most. Like those days are different. If I'm cruising with my mates, I'll start kind of doing a bit more messing on the sides. Mm-hmm. But then certain runs, are kind of, I kind of, I literally cannot help myself. If I see a gap and there's no one there, and I'm not going to like lose run into someone. I just, I have to go. Oh, should we do one event we done was, well, not an event. It was a, these guys used to do a thing called Chase the Leprechaun on Paddy Say. Okay. So they were like, Carl, will you be our leprechaun for the day? And I was like, yeah, what do I have to do? And they were like, basically, we used to catch you. And so over there, they have, you know, like their $1 and $2 coins. Everyone who wants to participate gives me a dollar. Mm-hmm. So they're gold coins. So I'm the leprechaun with a bag of gold 
basically. <laughs> and however cash to me gets the money, you know. So, <laughs> so for Paddy's sake, we're down the bottom of the hill. I'm kitted out in as much green as possible so that people can see me <laughs> with kind of like tag rugby kind of straps on my hips because mm-hmm. they said, oh, we have to tag you. I was like, you're not going to, I'm not letting someone tackle me. So I had these Velcro straps with like tinsel on the ends of them. Mm-hmm. So if you got within about three meters, you would have been able to snag it, you know? So right. literally for the whole, like for about three hours, I'm nearly up to the top of the run. And from the chairlift, I'm in a tuck, top to bottom. <laughs> like I think, I think I done, I think I've done about 16 runs that day. And my average speed was about 85 kilometers an hour for the mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, but that was, that's a different day. That's just having the crack where people are just trying to chase it. And then I was just, my legs were burnt and I just let someone catch me. I was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. You know. You let <laughs> them win. <laughs> oh, well, sure. Because even like the Irish bar got, got involved and they were like, right, if you catch Carl, you get a free pint of Guinness and a, and a free meal. So there was like, you know, I was skiing down a run and just, you could just see people coming in from the valleys. It was just like something out of a James Bond movie where you just see people <laughs> hiding behind trees and then coming out after you, you know? <laughs> oh, but so it was cool. a, it was absolutely brilliant crack. So there. fun, yeah. No, yeah. So, and then if you get the nice days where just the sun is out, mm-hmm. bluebird day, and they've just pieced a lot of runs, I literally used to take out a pair of race skis and no one would see me for the day. Yeah, nice. It's just different skis for different days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and no mates that can keep up with you <laughs> no and I did like sometimes a few of my mates come over because my brother lived over with me and my sister lived with me a couple of friends from home moved over mm-hmm. and you now they're trying to tuck in behind you everyone's trying to get over 100k's I'm looking back and I'm just oh no they're going to kill themselves I was like boy stop trying to keep up because <laughs> they'll see me go for a run and then I'm at the bottom and I'm looking at them in it dodgy looking tuck with their legs going all over the place mm-hmm. I was like oh no we're gonna have this lad killed <laughs> oh, God. You know, so it's a mix yeah I definitely have a mix of a mix or I'll just start way back and then just take off you know yeah yeah the speed skiing is easy if you have the equipment and you have a hill yeah the way it is it's it's not that difficult to go that fast I, mm-hmm. like, I'm sure people downhill skiing or free skiing they can tip over 110 120 you just need the right conditions and the right gear yeah. and not be silly about it either. Because You have to be worrying about people just popping in from the side. And You hit someone at that speed. The guy nearly cleaned the dog out of it one day because of one of the runs we used to go down. You'd get about 100 on it, but there was a walkway. And next thing you know, I'm three quarters of the way down and this little dog just scurries out. And then it's going over and back and over and back. And I was like, oh my God. which way is this lad going to go? And thank God, about, about five or six metres before, he kind of sprinted off. And I was like, I'm gonna, I don't know which way this dog is going to go. Yeah. But thank God the little dog <laughs> moved out of the way. <laughs> oh, God. So uh, you're back in Ireland now. What are you doing in Ireland at the moment? Back in college at the moment. So I'm trying to move out of hospitality into a bit more sport coaching side of things. So I'm studying sport and performance psychology. You're doing a master's in sport yes. and performance psychology. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it was just one of the lads. Um, when I fell that time and I was trying to get back in, one of the lads had spoken about, he after the fall, he was like, you're going to have to get onto a sports psychologist to get your head right to go skiing again. And I just kind of left it at that. I didn't bother. I was I thought I'd be grand and like that. You're always just stubborn. But I never even heard of a sports psychologist before that. And, and then I kind of looked into it a little bit. And then when I moved home first, I'd done a course in psychology 
mm-hmm. and then an entry level course in sports psychology and then I went into the masters just because it was something I definitely like to get more involved with in the future 100% it does not that many jobs we don't have enough professional sports in Ireland over in the UK you have you know any amount of soccer even the ladies soccer rugby we don't have many professional teams in Ireland so it's something that I will just constantly progress and do and they're kind of at the moment in the course they said well there's not as many jobs in sports psychology you know you can do entry-level stuff in clubs and they're kind of pushing us towards a bit of corporate well-being it's going to keep mm-hmm. you in the industry yeah. while you're learning more, you know. So that's probably what I'll end up doing in the ne- in the near future. Because one thing that we're kind of focusing a lot of in class and in work is, you know, getting kids more active. Mm-hmm. You know, kids at the moment, it's just the dropout rates are huge in sport, especially with uh, girls kind of moving from that kind of 12 to 13, 14 years. There's too many kids just overweight, obese, not mm-hmm. getting enough physical activity spending too much time on their phones and I'd like to get into something like that. There is a lot of stuff being brought in to kind of promote that sort of stuff. So I'd love to really get my teeth into something like that, kind of get kids more active, you know. So hopefully that'll be the kind of route I'll end up going down. Yeah, awesome. Uh, From your experiences of your visa application for Australia and Canada, do you have any advice that you can share with our listeners about the process for those? Perhaps not use someone else's visa, but anything else that's helpful. (laughs) To do things legitimate, for my first one over in Australia, I went through a company. um, I went through a visa company in in Ireland called Use It. I don't know if if they're everywhere else, but they just kind of looked after everything. And they do a good package at the time. It was return flights with insurance. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to stop over on the way, sort out all your visa, sort out your insurance. And to me, it was just a no-brainer. And similarly with Canada, I went through a company. Mm-hmm. Now you had to get your visa, but you know, I went through them for insurance. Cheapest insurance you'll get was probably with one of those big tour operators or people looking after your visas. Mm-hmm. It's an extra few quid, but trust me, it's worth it. Yeah. I just find when you're when you're making such a big commitment to spend a year or two years somewhere, you know, if it costs you an extra two or three hundred euro, just pay it. You know, yeah, yeah. it's boxed off. Like one thing over in Canada, when you're going over. If you don't have insurance for your two years, say if I only had a year insurance, they'll only give you a year visa when you get in. Mm-hmm. So when you walk in and it's like, I have a two-year visa, it's like you're insured for a year, we'll give you a year visa. Yeah. So there are things people don't know if they're kind of doing it themselves, maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd say go to a company, much easier. Yeah, awesome. If someone was planning to do only one season, where would you recommend them to go? Canada, 100%. I just found in Europe, seasons are great. Mm-hmm. I just found where you can have a better balance where I was working in a job where you start at three or four o'clock in the day. You're only working till 12, one o'clock, mm-hmm. but you're making good money. Like when yeah. you're working for tips, you're getting 200 quid a night in tips plus wages. And you have the hill every day yeah. until two or three o'clock where with the reps, you have an awful lot more responsibility. But again, when you're going through a tour operator in Europe, they pay for everything mm-hmm. to get you there. Pay, get your accommodation, get your lift pass. When you do go to Canada and Australia, you don't get any of that. It's all on your own. So when you get there, it's expensive to get going. But once mm-hmm. you get going, it's, it's, it's brilliant. So, so Canada, yeah. Canada, okay. What was your best job and what was your worst job? Okay, what was my best and worst job? Best job was probably the summer season in Kelowna. And I was just as a server. 
And it was best job purely down to money. People used to pull up on their boats, come in for lunch. You look after them, you charm them a little bit with your accents. My accent definitely got thicker over there <laughs> when certain people had come in. And you just talk dribble to them. I had done a couple of courses, like I got my level two for my sommelier for W set. So you know your spiel about the wines and you just milk it for people and they just love it and they give you a lot of cash at the end. So you're making a fortune and you're just chilling out in shorts and t-shirt and work. So that was the best job. Worst job oh, over in Australia, I'd done one day on the phones, ringing up, just cold calling in the back of a phone office. I was told it was some telecommunications job. I was in the back of a phone shop on a laptop ringing people mm-hmm. and I, I lasted a day. That was definitely my worst job without fair. <laughs> what was your favourite season and why? Favourite season, my second season in Big White because we used to get probably 20, 30 centimetre dumps every week. But there was one day I woke up, we had about 70 or 80 centimetres overnight. So the snow, the crew that we were with, just the snow was just absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. My next question was, where is your favourite place to ski? But I think we've answered that one already. Big white, yeah. I'd say Whistler if it wasn't so busy. I've done one or two days in Whistler and the skiing is, it is phenomenal. It's class. Um, and I've I done like kind of backcountry stuff out there and it was just amazing. But mm-hmm. it's just it's too busy. Mm-hmm. What is the best thing about season life or being a seasoner? Best part of it all is probably the freedom. I found, you know, between your summers and your winters, our winter season finished mid-April. The summer one really didn't kick off till June. So you had mm-hmm. six weeks to kind of save a bit of money during your season and just head off. So we used to bounce over to Southeast Asia for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. or you do something else for a couple of weeks. So between your seasons, you get to come home for a couple of weeks. There's that gap in between. And it's just the freedom of just, you meet a lot of new people. Yeah. Where are you going next season? And you might go with them, you might not. You might have new housemates. But definitely the people, everyone's on the same kind of mindset, you know. So it's just the freedom and then the people make the seasons yeah for sure can you tell us about a challenge or difficulty you faced during your season journey and what did you learn from it challenges were oh well obviously there was the visa challenges but I actually started getting very complacent when I was traveling so I wasn't too worried about you know oh I don't need an ESTA to get into the US or I need to do this I, I was getting very complacent mm-hmm. with when I was traveling where I was just very relaxed about it like I headed over to Thailand and it's like, oh, go over. Before you go, you pay, I don't know, 20 or 30 euro and you'll get two months. I was like, ah, sure. I was there before. You can get it when you're over there. And end up costing you three times the price. Oh, really? So as much traveling as you do, be up to date with what's going on. Because I just got naive. Was, ah, I was there before. You know, you, you get a bit complacent. So yeah. um, definitely just check it up. Don't be stubborn and just don't get complacent. Yeah, just make sure you know the visa rules and things like that before you go and the prices and things the protocols change so just be aware don't be naive that's one thing definitely cost me a few quid what's one thing you wish you had known before doing your first season oh that is a really tough question what (laughs) do you know what for for my first season I probably would have relaxed a little bit more and enjoyed it a bit more I felt because I had work come from jobs where I kind of worked for my parents, I had a bit more responsibility or I took it very, very, very seriously. But I probably would have relaxed a bit more instead of thinking, you know, work, work. I felt I took the job far too serious. Yeah. Um, and might not have come across like that to Dale's ski company. But <laughs> yeah, that's probably something I would have liked to have done a bit more of. Yeah. 
And you don't need a shirt and tie at a ski job fair. Yes, you definitely, <laughs> definitely do not. <laughs> um, so it's clear that from this chat, you've had a lot of unbelievable experiences. Is there sort of a memorable or unlikely story you can share with us that, that sticks out to you during your seasons? Um, I suppose, yeah, the most memorable and random bit of all of my travelling was I ended up competing in cocktail competitions around Canada. <laughs> By chance, there was, a ran, there was a cocktail competition on up in the ski resort. I entered, got into the regional bit, stayed one representative from the ski hill that used to compete in a competition up there against the eight best in Western Canada. And I had done all right in that. Then for the following summer, I'd done three or four competitions. So I'd done the National Beef Eater one. I think I came third in that. I'd done the Canadian Bartenders Association one. Uh, then I'd done a regional one in Kelowna. I won that three years in a row. Oh, wow. And then I won one with Absolute Vodka and they brought me to Sweden for five days. So that was probably the most random thing where I never made a cocktail really in my life. And then I spent most of my time in Canada and I got obsessed with it. I think it's just, it must be some sort of thing I like with competition. Yeah. Whether it's skiing or something. And I was like, oh, well, if I'm going to be a bartender, I may as well compete against other yeah. bartenders or something. And that was actually great crack. So <laughs> yeah, that was probably the most random thing out of all of it. Obviously a very competitive person. <laughs> Well, like I played most sports when I was younger at home and shit. I, I was never really any good. I'd, I'd be playing sports, but I'd be kind of more of a, a journeyman in most sports. But uh, skiing seemed to do me justice and then cocktail making. I don't know where that came from, but it worked out a treat for me. <laughs> where is home for you? I'm guessing Ireland. <laughs> home for me is Ireland, yeah. And it, it, it definitely will be for the foreseeable future. I kind of done my time abroad and, you know, I think if you do find a place well and good, um, I gave everywhere a good chance, but yeah, like just home is home. Um, and I'm yeah. really happy I'm home now. You know? Yeah. What was the thing you missed most about home when you were away? Uh, it's, it's, it's your old friends and family, you know. And mm. um, I found the transition quite difficult actually coming home first because, you know, you've gone from, oh, visit, I'm home for a week, lads. We go for a few pints um, and then kind of, getting back to being at home and you're, you know, I felt, I found it really difficult to kind of transition into being home, especially because I was kind of, at the time I was fundraising and stuff for the skiing. So even if I wanted to go down to the pub and I was having the crack, whatever, I didn't want to be seen to be going getting drunk and kind of out having a laugh because I was like, oh, well, I'm trying to raise money for speed skiing. So I don't want people thinking I'm just on the piss and then doing that at the same time. I was just in my own head, yeah. I think, more than anything, because no one really actually cares and gives a shite, really. But in my head, I, I just found it very, very difficult to transition home. And then I ended up meeting a girl, so that kind of put that to bed and made it an awful lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from Ireland, where was the place that you felt most at home that wasn't home? Yeah, big white in Canada. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would you say? Actually, if I told my younger self, I probably would have travelled earlier instead of yeah. thinking, oh, stay at home and do this. And, like, just head off earlier and enjoy it, you know. Um, and what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? What did my dad say? When I first came home my first ski season and I was thinking about staying at home, he was like, you're not. He goes, where are you going next? And he kind of kept at me to be like, where are you going next? 
because he was, as he said, Carol, there's a recession here in Ireland. What are you going to do? It's like the perfect opportunity and chance yeah. to leave with no responsibilities and just go. So what are you going to be doing here anyway? So that was probably as good as advice as you could get. Yeah, yeah. And what was the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? A few people with certain things being like, oh, make sure you stay in that job. You need the money. You'll have to do this. Um, probably staying in a couple of jobs when I was abroad where I shouldn't have been there more than a day. But people are like, no, you, it'll be, you won't get into another job. And listening to kind of the managers and stuff in restaurants. And I was like, oh, you, you don't want to be walking around here with your CV in a couple of weeks now? You know, listen to that bullshit because you're so naive at the time. So definitely don't listen to them. No, exactly. We talk a lot about mentors on the show. It's come up quite a few times. Did you have any mentors on your season there journey? Yeah, I would say three mentors, definitely. Um, three big mentors mm-hmm. would be the two owners over in Canada, Jude Brunt, Paul Doherty, and then the manager um, in the same restaurant was Joe Adette. I had always worked hospitality, but she was the first person who was really professional kind of just mannerisms. She taught me how to manage people, how to deal with people mm-hmm. in a professional way, taught me how yeah. to be more professional and still be a good boss. So she taught me how to be probably the best boss I could be. Um, so those three, they def- definitely moulded me into kind of the person I would be now, I would think. Um, I couldn't give them more credit, you know. Cool. Do you have any quotes or sayings that you live by? 100%. Well, I kind of live by one that, you know, everyone quotes is all over, probably everywhere on Pinterest. But I remember reading it on the roof when I was in a hostel in Thailand. I'd never heard it before. And it was just the one where it's, the world is a book and those who do not travel only read one page. Did you ever hear that quote before? I don't think I've ever heard that. It's awesome. Yeah. And I read that. I was really looking at it on the roof in the hostel. And I don't live exactly by that where I think of oh, people who don't travel are only on one page. But I've tried to live my life ever since as a chapter to chapter basis. Mm-hmm. So I'd have me like France chapter, Australia chapter, Canada chapter, speed skiing chapter, cocktail stuff chapter. Now I'm on to this next chapter when I'm home. So I've kind of lived chapter to chapter more than just float through life. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I kind of took that quote and moved it around. And then one thing I found, especially if I was trying to do something in a professional capacity, I loved that saying, uh, would you follow you? Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear? So no, I've never heard that either. So it's a great one. It's like, would you follow you? So when I'd be doing things in work, and I was kind of questioning myself, I'd be like, if I was looking from the outside, would you do that? As in, if someone else was watching what you're doing, would you still do it? So would you follow you? So I felt that was a really good one to kind of keep in the back of my head. Yeah, that's really good. So yeah, they'd be the two that kind of come across my head when I'd be thinking of stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, do you have any books, movies, podcasts, or publications which you can recommend to our listeners which have helped you on your path? Or can you name one thing that has inspired you recently? Um, I suppose one one book that I started reading when I was abroad was one, it was called The Power of Habit mm-hmm. by Charles DeWitt or something like that. And it was just, I found, if you're in a little rush, if you're doing something different, but that book, The Power of Habit, I found was amazing. And it was something I looked at a few times on Amazon, never bought it, went by two or three bookshops and it was there in front of me. I said, like, well, I have to buy this. So 
that'll be the, that'll be the only thing that really stands out to me. And of course, the Season Air podcast, if you're doing seasons, you've got to get on to the Season Air podcast. <laughs> It'll inspire everyone to get going and traveling. I promise I didn't tell him to say that. <laughs> but thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've listened to them all and it's great. A good journey there. And it's great because it kind of brings me back to my seasons. Because oh. when people, you can relate to so many things. People can have every other season under the sun. But you can, I guarantee you can relate to it in some way, shape or form. So anyone who's ever done a season anywhere can relate to it, oh, you know. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's really cool. Do you have a myth about season air life that you would like to debunk? It's not all about riding and going on the pole every single night and drinking every single night. Maybe if you're doing a summer <laughs> season abroad. I've heard many stories of summer seasons abroad. Winters are totally different. Yeah. I think anyway, it's definitely not debauchery seven nights a week. It's not as hectic as I what I would, well, I've heard stories mm-hmm. from other reps that I've worked with of summer seasons. It sounds like absolute madness. If you're doing seasons, it doesn't have to be all party. Mm-hmm. You can have anyone who's in your ski resort, in your work crew, that's there to ski. And you, you can have that balance 100%. It's not just going on the piss and getting fucked up for a season. You can have the balance 100%. Yeah. That'd be the kind of thing I definitely debunk. It's not just a piece of. If you want it to be, it can be. And you're going to finish your season broke and taking years off your life. Yeah. yeah. Probably some sort of STD. But you, can, you don't have to go that route if you don't want to. Exactly. Exactly. So I have to ask my mum's favorite question, Mark Lender's favorite question. What's one thing you take everywhere with you when you travel? Or do you have any travel hacks? Travel hacks, I think, I think it was you who mentioned this one, was bringing the adapter, the power cable or the power cord yeah. with the multi-plugs. I do the exact same, bring it everywhere. That's one thing I definitely bring everywhere. I tell everyone <laughs> to bring one down, especially during seasons. And then I always had a hard drive, mm-hmm. a large hard drive. Rob movies off everyone else. Mm-hmm. Don't do it illegally, obviously, whatever. Um, but have that large storage file with everything on it. Yeah, yeah. All your visa stuff everything on it you might get stuck in a caravan for five months in Australia with no internet so a little hard drive a lot of movies <laughs> comes in very well awesome that's a great tip what was the biggest lesson learned from living and working abroad biggest lesson would definitely be um choose who you live with carefully definitely choose who you live with carefully I wonder, oh, there's a couple of lessons I suppose don't get too friendly with some housemates or staff members. I think everyone learns that the hard way. <laughs> Sometimes you can't help who you put with if you're doing sort of tour operator jobs. So you can't exactly. choose them too carefully. But if you can't, then if be can't, careful how yourself. personal you get with. <laughs> yes. I think it'll save you a serious amount of time and drama. <laughs> <laughs> Great advice there, Carl. <laughs> if you hadn't gone and done your first season, what do you think you'd be doing right now? I'd probably have got into work, bought a house and been sitting in negative equity for about 200 grand in Ireland. So it probably would have been a disaster. <laughs> so it was a good decision then? <laughs> oh, 100%, yeah. Because that's what everyone else did. Get into a job, buy a house. Then the recession came, you went broke, you know, so. I did that actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did the season anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, Yeah. <laughs> So everyone that comes on the show, as you've heard, nominates a couple of people to come on. Is there anyone you would like to hear come on and have a chat with me? 
Oh, definitely a few. <laughs> Jeez, there's so many. I'm trying to think of how many people are. There's so many that have done so many different seasons, but I think for one guy in particular, I think he's an amazing story, is a guy called Bryce Russell. Mm-hmm. He's a winemaker, done a couple of seasons in Canada, Australia. He's an Australian guy. But um, while we were doing a bit of traveling, he had an awful bike accident. Oh, nice. And um, where his bike literally went on fire, and so did he. And he was two or three months bed bound, like third degree burns. Oh, my God. Arms and legs. And then within a couple of months, he was back skiing or back on the board doing a couple of seasons. Um, wow. So his story is brilliant yeah. and just really, really nice guy. Yeah, cool. And he's done seasons everywhere. And then he'd go working as a winemaker in the summers, you know, really nice guy as well. Yeah. Um, so his story, he's a great story to tell. Yeah. And then probably Megan Lockheed, who kind of, she's a Canadian girl, done tons of ski seasons in France. Mm-hmm. And like that, she lived a season life for a long, long time. So ah, okay. she would definitely, I'm sure she has plenty of stories. They're the guys that jump out at me straight away. Cool. So what's next for Carl? Next is finish out this master's now the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. I'm going to end up probably working for a couple of months then afterwards. I'm going to do Southeast Asia with my girlfriend. Nice. She's never got to do a bit of traveling and things like that. So we'll see what happens after a while. But yeah, no, the plan is stay at home. Kind of be a bit more of an adult, I suppose, you know, get those those daunting thoughts of being a, a real a real adult for a while. Yeah. So that's that's kind of next <laughs> on the cards. Perfect. Um, is there anything that you would like to promote or any other bits of advice you would like to give to our listeners before we end the chat? Uh, nothing to promote, but I suppose any advice is literally to everyone should burn out every chance they get to use a visa abroad. Mm-hmm. Like after 32, I think, or 31 in New Zealand, it's not that long in Canada, Australia. Do your thing. Go to uni. As soon as you finish university, maybe get a year's experience so you have that under your belt and then disappear. Mm-hmm. And literally go for it. Like you can go anywhere. Yeah. Worst case scenario, you're on a flight home. When I was heading off to New York and things like that, you know, you land in the middle of New York. You're like, oh, what am we doing here? First day of work, I made seven dollars. I was like, "How am I meant to live here?" Mm-hmm. But I kept saying, "I said like, it's only a flight home. Go everywhere and do it." Like the worst case scenario is you come home, but yeah. you got to try it. You got to burn out them visas. And I suppose one thing to tell everyone: it's not what you see on Instagram. Mm-hmm. None of the traveling is. You see five percent of it on Instagram that looks great. The real stories and the enjoyment out of most of it is. It's the shit you have to deal with to get the good stuff. Yeah. You know, like the crappy jobs or just all those little bits that are horrible. It all makes it kind of worth it because if it was all too easy, it's just, you don't appreciate it as much. You know, when you have to live on a blow up mattress for a couple of weeks to finally move into somewhere, <laughs> then you really appreciate when you move into somewhere, you know? So, Very true. Yeah. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's, uh, it's definitely an awful lot more difficult than, so you need to be a bit more resilient don't think of coming home after the first few hurdles. Just grit it out and it will work. It will work, but uh, it's not easy to start. Yeah. So you just need to get that out of your head. Think of it as going to be a disaster and don't get to a new country and burn all your money on beer and then try to look for a job in a house. Yeah. You know, be a bit sensible, but it's just not easy to start, but it's good once you get going. Yeah, perfect. 
All right. I think that's us done, Carl. It's been lovely to catch up. So thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. I hope you get more and more people on because I'm really enjoying listening to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was so much fun. Thank you again to Carlo Dwyer for coming on the show today. It must be around eight or nine years since Carl and I last saw each other, but it was like no time had passed at all. Don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram for all the latest information and click subscribe on your favourite podcast player to get all new releases as they come out. Once again, a big thank you to Mike at Mike Sports Bar for the studio space. Thank you to Mondo Wave for the music and thanks to you guys for tuning in. See you all again next time. Especially in those little suits, you feel so vulnerable.